Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. We're going to start um, reading for the sake of time in verse 12. This passage I'm reading for is actually a passage that is that extends from verse 5 through verse 38, but this week, for the sake of time, we'll begin reading in verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at this passage, as we consider what your Son was teaching his disciples, what Luke was communicating to Theophilus for the benefit of his own life and for the church, what your spirit was superintending for even our instruction 2,000 years later. Father, we pray that as we consider this word that your spirit would work in our hearts and minds and turn on the lights so that we see the truth, that we know the truth, that we rejoice in the truth, that we repent where we need to repent, that we find great joy where we should, that we trust you and obey you so that you would be honored. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm not sure if you're aware, but thousands, thousands of people have been martyred every year, nearly every year since Christ has come for their trust in him. You guys aware of that? We talk about martyrdom in the early church. What we don't talk about often is the fact that Christians have been persecuted and martyred for the last 2,000 years, almost every year for their faith. Now that doesn't entirely surprise us because Jesus promised us it would be that way. Look with me, keep your hand in Luke 21, and look with me at, at John chapter 15. John chapter 15, which is the next gospel over, if you're not familiar, toward the back, so you're in Luke, you just go to John. John 15, and look with me at verse 18. John 15, 18, Jesus is teaching the disciples in the last week of his life, as he is here in Luke 21. He's teaching them the last week of his life as well in John 15, verse 18. 
And Jesus speaking to the disciples. Now I want you to know that you here is you the disciples. Does it apply to us? Sure it does. But the first application is to them. And he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now I want you to stop and think about that because it's fairly profound. We don't often think about it. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Usually when the world hates us, we're like, well, what am we doing wrong? As a Christian, what, did I not say that well enough? Did I not behave just right? Could I have handled that differently? Because they hate me. Well, to contend that is to say that apparently Jesus didn't say something just right, and apparently Jesus didn't behave just right because they hated him. And Jesus seems to be contending, listen, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, listen, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now why does the world hate you? The world hates you because you're not living like them. You're not believing what they believe. Now I want you to be clear on this because it's incredibly important as we go through this that to trust in Jesus and be persecuted for your faith does not mean that solely you are persecuted for the things that you say about Jesus. It also means you're persecuted for living the way that Jesus lived. For doing the things that Jesus said. It isn't just a persecution for an internal belief. It's a persecution that comes from an external practice as well. Now, we're supposed to be marked as different from the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. That means our life should follow the pattern of Scripture from beginning to end. If you go back into the early part of the story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the first counselor in the Bible, in other words, the first person who ever gives advice in Scripture is God. God is the first counselor. Adam and Eve, as man and woman, even in their perfect sinless state, needed a wise counselor, and God was the first wise counselor, and what does he come to them and tell them to do? Don't eat of the fruit of that tree, and if you do all this, you'll live. If you do that, you'll die. And he gives them wise counsel. And then second counselor in the Bible comes along, and who's the second counselor? Satan. And Satan says, don't trust what God tells you. Don't listen to what he says and don't do what he says. And from there, you have two counselors all the way through the Bible, which are Satan and God. That God gives you wise counsel, Satan gives you foolish counsel. And that comes through their seed. The seed of the Lord are, is all through Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their offspring, and then as you come, ultimately, Jesus. In other words, the seed of the Lord or, or, or the woman that are in the Lord are all those who believe in Christ. The seed of the serpent who's at enmity with the seed of the woman are those who do not follow Christ. Those who listen to foolish counsel. And those are the two kinds of counsel there are. Those who listen to Christ and his word and those who do not. And we're supposed to not be of the world. In other words, not those who listen to Satan and the foolish people 
who follow him, because the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool lacks the fear of the Lord. The fool is the person who does not trust and obey the word of God. We're not supposed to be like them as believers. We've been rescued from foolishness. So Jesus says, if you were of the world, if you were like them, the world would love you as its own. So if the world loves you as its own, you have a problem, don't you? But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what happens if the world doesn't hate you? So don't often ask that. We're generally surprised they hate us. That's what we're generally surprised by. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now go to chapter 16 of John, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. See, what I'm doing is I'm quieting you religious bigots. I'm offering service to God, and however that's defined, which is usually some weird sense of morality that is an unbiblical sense of morality, by quieting all you bigots. You know, there was an important, fairly important news writer who recently argued that Christians ought to be persecuted because of their bigotry. Because he thinks he's offering service to God. Is this not what's happening in the Middle East as these Christians are being persecuted and killed? These evil people actually believe they're offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes... You, remember, you may remember that I told them to you. Hear that? So it's no surprise, or it's not supposed to be a surprise, that Christians around the world suffer persecution. It's supposed to be a surprise when we don't. You know, we have an Iranian couple in our own congregation, the husband of whom you'll actually eventually hear from this pulpit, who were imprisoned and then exiled from their country due to their faith in and proclamation of Christ. And as your pastor, I need to be preparing you for the suffering and persecution that we see that that couple physically underwent, but that you're going to go undergo still, it just may look different than theirs looked. I want to give you the same advice Jesus gave to his disciples. See, we're not generally physically threatened for our faith, are we? We're not generally physically threatened for our faith. It does occur. It has happened to some of us. I've been physically threatened. My family's been stalked before for my faith. 
But it isn't the typical experience, is it? Typically, we suffer persecution in our country when our names are being reviled for the sake of Jesus' name. Did you guys hear that? That's typically how we suffer it. We suffer persecution when we're mocked for believing what Jesus said and for obeying what Jesus commanded. We suffer persecution when we're told to be quiet about our view of human sexuality and gender. And when our freedoms to practice our beliefs are increasingly being undermined by the state. That's persecution. There are some wedding photographers and cake bakers and others who are beginning to suffer persecution, and we see it in the news, particularly financial of the financial sort, because they won't violate what Jesus says regarding marriage. That may not be imprisonment and death, but it is still persecution. And Christian, mark this. I want you to mark this. You will be increasingly labeled as an intolerable bigot. If you continue to believe and practice, if you continue to believe and practice what the Lord says in his word about issues like human sexuality, this will increasingly cost the Christian community. I'm not saying this to depress you. I'm saying this to let you know where things are going. Pay attention to the news. It is increasingly becoming so. But listen, you can even experience persecution in much smaller ways than that, and, and even from so-called professing Christians. You guys ever experienced it? Have you ever been at an event where without saying anything, you're accused of being judgmental just because your lifestyle reminds people of your commitment to Christ? You might not have had any judgment in your heart. You might not have been thinking anything, but the fact that you walked in living the way you walk, people say, well, that person's judgmental. You ever had that happen? Even from professing Christians. You ever been in a situation where taking a stand for God's word means that people spread gossip about you, call you mean-spirited, attack you personally? That can happen from so-called Christians. You know that? See, there's this, subtly, this subtle underlying assumption, and I want you to be aware of this, a subtle underlying assumption that I have suffered from and probably you have suffered from, that if that big mouth person had said what they said more graciously, more artfully, more winsomely, you know, the way I would say it, then people would not have reacted so negatively. How, how do you say in a very gracious and winsome way that we are all wretched sinners condemned to death and the eternal conscious torment in hell. How do you, how do you say that in a way that anybody likes it? Does it I, I still don't like it. That Jesus is the only way. That God did not send him as some kind of exercise or example of showing I'm merciful, but hey, you could get saved any other way. I know I crushed my son on the cross from you, but there are other options. I just did that as some kind of weird show on the side. That's 
bizarre behavior on God's part. So when you start claiming that when Jesus came, that that's exclusively the way you're saved, that there is no other name on he- under heaven by which men must be saved, name of Jesus Christ, how can you say that to somebody and have them happy with you? What's amazing about this is that Jesus was persecuted and killed for what he said. And yet some of his professing followers think that they can somehow say it better or handle it better than the Lord so that unbelievers will like them in what they're saying. Think of the arrogance that's inherent in that. Let me be clear. You are not, you are not, Jesus says this, you are not greater than your master. And if you're avoiding persecution for your faith while wondering why other Christians can't handle things better, the real problem is likely with you and not with the other Christians. You're likely not doing and saying what your master said and did. The disciples were also persecuted, even killed, for saying and doing what the Lord said and did. As a disciple, I want you to be clear about this. As a disciple, you will not escape some kind of persecution. And woe unto you if all men speak well of you, for so they did to the false prophets. Isn't that what Jesus says? He never ever says, blessed are you if all men speak well of you. He says, woe unto you if all men speak well of you, for so they did to the false prophets. I bring this up because as we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse in Luke and learning about Jesus' judgment on the temple in Israel for the rejection of him as Messiah, we've been seeing Jesus take this opportunity to pastor his disciples. And as he's pastoring them, he's been warning them of what's to come. And he's been giving them commands and promises as to how they're supposed to handle it. And today I want to look at really two more truths from this passage that Jesus wanted his disciples to know and that he wants us to know as well. Here's the first one. The first one is this. God promises persecution. Did you hear that? First people. He promises persecution for his people. That may not be a promise that you're excited about, but the disciples certainly were. For example, in Acts 5, when after suffering for the name, they come out rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer for the name. So God promises persecution. And the second one is that God makes provision for us in the midst of persecution. Do you hear that? So when we're in the midst of persecution, not only is he promise we will be, but he promises to make provision for us, to provide for us when we're in it. So what does he pr- promise to provide? And we'll look at that. Let's look at first at the promise of persecution, though. Look at verse 12 of Luke 21. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you. Now this is Jesus talking to his disciples. And what does he mean by before all this? He's referring to the troubles that they're going to see throughout the land. Wars will come. False teachers will come. But the first thing you're going to run into, disciples, is persecution. And we know that's true when we go to the book of Acts because the first thing the disciples hear about is not wars and rumors of wars or earthquakes or whatever. The first thing that happens to disciples is they begin to be persecuted, right? They begin proclaiming the gospel and they're persecuted. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. See, before you hear about wars and rumors of wars, after I die, 
on the cross and resurrect from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father, and you begin preaching the gospel, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be delivered up to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. And Jesus has a pastoral concern for his disciples. I don't want you to be afraid when that happens. This isn't a time for you to cower in fear. It's coming. Be aware. It's coming. They need to understand that they will not only be tempted to fearfulness from the wars and tumults they hear about, from the troubles and travails that are around them, they're going to be tempted to be fearful in the midst of persecution for their faith. Does it not cause us to shudder a bit to be persecuted for our faith? And persecution came to the disciples. It did, right? came to them. You guys familiar with what happens in Acts? They immediately start being dragged before the synagogue and before the Sanhedrin and before governors, and they get imprisoned and even killed. Jesus actually gives a further warning about this coming persecution. Go down to verse 16 of the same passage. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus gives the same warning in the mission discourse that's found in Matthew 10. So I want you to keep your hand in Luke 21 and look at Matthew 10, where Jesus gives this same warning earlier in his ministry with his disciples. This isn't the first time they've heard this from him. This is a passage here in Matthew 10 that we often avoid. Verse 34. Do not think, Matthew 10, verse 34, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. What? Wait a minute, what do you mean you didn't come to bring peace to the earth? Don't we sing every Christmas, peace on earth? Don't we sing that? You guys know what I'm talking about? What about it? Actually, the proper translation of that text in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, is peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased. He says, I did not come to bring peace to the earth. I have, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he's not talking here about the fact that he's bringing a physical sword. He's talking about the fact that he's dividing people. You ready? For I have come, verse 35, to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You ever experienced that because of your faith in Jesus? Jesus expects you will. Whoever loves, his, loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, how does that show? How does it show? It shows in that in front of my father and mother or son or daughter or brother or sister or friend that I won't speak about Jesus or I won't obey Jesus in this way because I'm afraid of what you'll think of me. I've now loved you more than Jesus. Because I'm more concerned about what you think of me than I am what the Lord thinks of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's amazing is we act almost as if Jesus cannot be right about all this when our family and friends turn on us, don't we? We accuse our spouse or our siblings or even wonder about ourselves and how we must have done something wrong when our family or friends turn on us because of our faith. Honey, if you just handled that better, what did I do? I should have just handled If I could have just said just the right thing, maybe if I had said this instead of that, that would have made them like me and Jesus. You know what that assumes? That the base is that, that Jesus didn't say and do everything just right because they hated him and put him to death. What was that? Did everybody hear that? Okay. Is that somebody's phone or something? Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> That's bizarre. All of a sudden I hear somebody go, oh, yay, right in the back. Even the Apple products are singing the praise of God. Okay. <laughs> Jesus said he'd cause these stones if we don't. All right. <laughs> it's possible that you did handle something improperly when you're persecuted. Don't get me wrong. It's possible you did handle something improperly. I have numerous times. I'm not like the person who gets in the car and drives away going, man, I should have said this, and I should have said that, and I should have said this. Some of you are that person, right? I'm the person in the car driving away going, man, I should not have said this. (laughs) I should not have said that. Okay. You know who you are if you're like me. But you might have handled something improperly, but please know that Jesus assumes, Jesus assumes that even if you do handle things properly, people will turn against you. Maybe especially if you handle things properly, people will turn against you. He assumes that because it happened to him. And the apostles faced all this, as we read in the book of Acts, as they're brought before councils and governors and kings, as they're imprisoned and beaten and even killed. So let's be clear that we are not told persecution might happen if we don't say or do everything just right. We're promised that persecution will come when we do and say what Jesus did and said. Perhaps... We should be more concerned when our name is not being reviled for the sake of Christ. Jesus never gives a woe unto you if your name is reviled because you don't handle things with just the right finesse so that everyone still likes you and me. Never says that. He says, woe unto you if everyone speaks well of you. So persecution is promised to his disciples in the first century and it's promised to us now. Now, that might sound like bad news, but it's good news because it means you're identified with the Savior and the Lord. Jesus promises, by the way, to make provision for us in the midst of this persecution. So he doesn't stop there by telling the disciples, you're going to be persecuted, good luck with that, okay? He actually promises to make provision. And he says, I'm going to give you three provisions in the midst of this, and here's what they are. Here's the first provision of the Lord in the midst of persecution. The first provision of the Lord is the Lord is going to provide you in the midst of persecution an opportunity to witness. So the first thing he's providing you in the midst of persecution is an opportunity to bear witness. Look at verse 13. This will be your opportunity 
to bear witness. In other words, this isn't an opportunity for you to clam up and be afraid. This is an opportunity for you to bear witness. When persecution comes, you're going to have even more opportunities to talk about me. Which is our great privilege to speak of him who saved us. I want you to think of simple things like Tim Tebow. Okay? Tim Tebow was made fun of for his commitment to Christ. He was even made fun of for his saving himself till marriage. You guys know that? Mocked in the media, etc. And every time someone poked fun at him for his commitment to Christ, there he was on the, oppor- on the news with another opportunity to bear witness to Jesus, wasn't he? Whether you like Tim Tebow or don't like Tim Tebow or think he's a good football player or not is irrelevant. The fact is that that brother, every chance that his name was reviled, he was on the news talking about Jesus. Or think about just this last week with Robert Griffin III, the quarterback at the Washington Redskins. The NFL, in the midst of all their scandal of people excessively beating up children and women and the whole thing, in the midst of all this scandal with this man who they celebrate and show video of as he kisses his male count, you know, lover, etc. All this protests Robert Griffin Jr. wearing a shirt that says, No Jesus, No Peace. Makes him turn it inside out at threat of a $100,000 fine. The result was, incidentally, that there was more talk about Jesus and Robert Griffin's commitment to him on the news as a result of their actions. You follow that? Became an opportunity for him to bear witness. Or think of how many people have heard the name of Jesus as a result of the persecution of Christians by ISIS in the Middle East. Paul speaks this way in Philippians 1. Keep your hand in Luke 21 and look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, Paul's imprisoned for his faith. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that means his imprisonment. That's what he's talking about, being in prison. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What did Jesus say? You're going to be dragged before judges and councils, etc., and imprisoned. And what is, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, Paul's letting all the guards know, I'm here for Jesus. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, not only are these guards around me hearing about Jesus, but my brothers in Christ outside of the prison, because of my God sustaining me while I'm here in the midst of persecution, they're becoming more bold to speak about Jesus. And I've got to tell you, when you see Christians in Iraq standing before people and being crucified and killed for their confession of Jesus Christ, if that doesn't embolden you to not worry about your neighbors saying something nasty about you if you talk about Jesus, I'm not sure what will. Now, I realize we may not be famous Christians, and we may not, we may not be in the New Testament, and we may lack the kind of attention that these others have gained. But this does not mean your boldness for your faith in the face 
for your faith in the face of persecution, in the face of mocking, it doesn't mean that it goes unnoticed by others. I've watched some of you personally be bold in your faith and encourages me to be bold in my faith. There are unbelievers who have sometimes contacted me and said, I can't believe how you'll stand up for Jesus when all these people are attacking you personally. You d- it just doesn't seem to phase you. I'm saying, well, I'm not saying it isn't painful. But this is what he commands me to say and do. And then they say stuff to me like, I think your faith is ridiculous, but you know what? My mom has cancer. Will you pray for her? <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's happened numerous times. They will openly argue with me in favor of atheism and call me all kinds of names and then privately contact me about praying for their family. It's my opportunity to bear witness. I'd say the same thing for you. Don't think it goes unnoticed. Some will mock the way you live and some will mock the way, what you believe, but others will wonder about your faith as a result and it will be an opportunity to speak of Jesus. What, what does one of the church fathers, early church fathers say, his name's Tertullian, he says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Even martyrdom, and perhaps especially martyrdom, is an opportunity to bear witness. Second, the Lord provides his powerful presence in persecution. So it's not just an opportunity to witness, but he provides his powerful presence in the in the midst of persecution. Look at verse 14 and 15 of Luke 21. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. In other words, I'll be with your mouth. I will be powerfully present with you. Don't worry about how to answer. Don't even sit around meditating, what will I say if this ever happens to me? Don't worry about it. Go out and proclaim Christ. Go out and live for Christ. And when the time comes, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. And none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And notice that promise. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. That's a reference to the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit witnessing through you. See, if you're one of these people who never knows how to respond, you know the person I described earlier who drives away in the car going, I wish I'd have said this. You have a kind of locked jaw in confrontational situations. You know what I'm talking about? And as you drive away, you think of all the comebacks you could have used. If you're like that, I imagine that in a pressure situation like like persecution, you're pretty confident you would have no idea what to say. Right? No capability of answering it. However, Jesus promises he will be with your mouth, which, by the way, isn't just a comfort for those of you who can't speak well in confrontational situations. It's a comfort for big mouths like me, too, because I need the Holy Spirit to be with my mouth to sanctify what I might say, because I might say all kinds of things that don't honor him. This promise is in Exodus, and it goes through the Scripture. Look at, keep your hand there in Luke 21, and look back to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, it's the second book of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with it. I just want to look at this briefly. God comes to this man, Moses, 
the Lord comes to Moses after he hears the cries of his people, and he says, I'm going to keep my covenant to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. My people are in persecution and suffering and slavery under the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh, so you know at that time, is the most powerful man in the known world. Pharaoh has conquered most of that area of the world, and, his, and Egypt is the most powerful empire in the world at that time. And the base of Egypt's economic system is the slavery of the Jews. Hear that? That is their economic system. Their economic system is built on the slavery of the Jews. And Yahweh comes to Pharaoh, the Lord comes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, I want you to go to, I mean, it comes to Moses. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you, Moses, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, if you're Moses and you hear that, you think to yourself, so I'm just supposed to walk up to him and say, well, the Lord wants you to let the entire base of your economic system leave and go out in the wilderness to worship him. You better obey. And Moses is obviously overwhelmed by the prospect of what he's being asked to do. And in chapter 4, verse 10, we find out that's compiled with the fact that Moses isn't a particularly good speaker. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. Just because you appeared to me in the burning bush does not mean that I'm eloquent. I'm not eloquent, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Isn't that what Jesus is basically telling the disciples? You won't know what to say. Don't worry about it. I'll be with your mouth. I'll teach you what to say. I'll give you a mouth and wisdom. Jeremiah chapter 1, just keep on going through your Old Testament to Jeremiah chapter 1. If you don't want to turn there, I'll just read it to you real quickly. It says this, the Lord says, says of Jeremiah, Then the Lord put out his hand, verse 9, and touched my mouth. That's what Jeremiah is saying. The Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So here's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, whom the Lord has touched his mouth, and put his words in his mouth. You see that following of what's happening with Moses? The reason Moses can speak on behalf of the Lord is because the Lord is going to give Moses a mouth to speak. And the reason Jeremiah can speak on behalf of the Lord is because the Lord is going to give Jeremiah a mouth to speak. And then what does Jesus do when he comes to the apostles in the Great Commission? What do we hear? Behold, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples among all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And now hear this, and surely I am with you, even to the end of the age. Why do we need that? Because we're supposed to go open our mouth about him. So we need him to be with our mouth. Luke chapter 12, turn there. Jesus has told this to the disciples before. Luke chapter 12 and verse 11. He says this, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, hear that? When this happens, do not be anxious 
about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's why I'm saying what Jesus is saying here is he says, I'm going to give you a mouth and wisdom. He's saying the Holy Spirit will be there with your mouth teaching you what to say. And we see this fulfilled in Acts chapter 6. I just want you to look to Acts chapter 6 briefly. Verse 10, if you don't want to turn there, I will read it because I'm going to come back to this passage at the end of this sermon. But in verse 10, Stephen is being brought before people and persecuted, and it says this, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That's a direct fulfillment of what Jesus promised, isn't it? I'll give you a mouth and wisdom. They will not be able to contradict you. John records this in John chapter 16. I just want you to look there because I've read earlier in John and I wanted to come back to it. Just look at the end of chapter 15 and then we'll look at 16. Verse 26, he's telling at the end of 15, he's been telling them they're going to be persecuted, right? And in verse 26 of chapter 15, he says, but when the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. How are you going to bear witness about me? Because the witness, the Holy Spirit, is going to come and be with your mouth to bear witness about me. And verse six, in chapter 16, after he says, you're going to be persecuted and some are going to think they're serving God, look at the, um, sorry, go down to um, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Who's going to do this work? The Holy Spirit is. How's he going to do it? Through your mouth. Jesus will send the helper to help them bear witness about Jesus. And he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Listen, you don't have to be quick-witted or smooth-tongued to bear witness in persecution. For the one who made your mouth, the one who was with Moses and with Jeremiah and with Jesus, is the same one who's with you. He will help you in persecution. Finally, third provision, the Lord provides an eternal reward for you in persecution. Look at verse 16 of Luke 21 again. I just want to get this up for comparative reason, really focusing on 18 and 19, but I want to look there. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You hear that? Here's part of the promise. Some of you will put to death. Not all of you are going to be put to death. Some of you will. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you'll gain your lives. What? How can some of us be put to death and not a hair on our head perish? Jesus, did you not know when you got to the next sentence you just contradicted yourself? Some will be put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you'll gain your lives. Listen, Jesus is not talking about avoiding physical suffering or persecution. He says, not a head on your hair will perish. One of the old commentators from the Reformation actually said, I I suppose they could cut your head off without your hair getting cut, right? Um, (laughs) 
which I laughed, but he's obviously not being serious. Jesus isn't talking about physical persecution or suffering. He's promising to give you eternal life when he says, not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. I'm going to give you the greatest reward and comfort you can know, which is life with me. Some of you might die, but none of you, none of you will die the second death. None of you will ultimately die. You'll be with me forever. That's the great reward. That's why in Luke chapter 6, I quoted this verse a bit earlier, but in Luke chapter 6, as Jesus is in the version that Luke has of the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus makes this statement in verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you. You ever thought about it that way? Blessed are you when people hate you. Not for being a jerk. Okay, that's a different thing. All right? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Did you know that can happen? People can spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. You bigot. This is who I am. How could you say it's a sin? You're evil. You're hurting me inside. You're hurting the people I love. You're an evil person. You know that can happen? It does happen. And what does Jesus say your condition is if it does? Blessed are you. When? Rejoice in that day, verse 23, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. When people persecute you for saying what the Lord says and for doing what the Lord does, you should rejoice and be glad they did the same thing to the prophets. They persecuted them for the same. But woe unto you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If you have a way of teaching about Jesus and living and obeying Jesus that causes all men to speak well of you, you are a false prophet. Did you hear that? Let me end with an example from Scripture with the promise of persecution. This example is where it all comes together, the promise and the provisions. Look at Acts chapter 6. I'm going to go back to the story of Stephen, and I'm going to end with it. I just want you to see this incredible story. We're not going to read through the entire sermon of Stephen, don't worry. But I want you to, I want you to see the beginning and the end of this. And St- verse, or chapter 6, verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You've heard that from Jesus, right? Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, they'll call you evil. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases 
to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat at the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then Stephen goes on to preach, but I want you to go to chapter 7 and verse 54. As he finishes his sermon telling them that they needed to look to Jesus, that all of Scripture finds its fulfillment in him, and that they are stiff-necked sinners for denying him. Always a popular message. As he finishes, he says this in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And I want you to catch this. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We were just told in Acts chapter 2 that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of God. So now why is he standing? He's taken his place as king and he's standing in honor of Stephen. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they came, or they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. By the way, it isn't incidental that they were laying their cloaks at the feet of Saul, is it? The man who eventually becomes known as the Apostle Paul. Stephen had his opportunity to bear witness. God was with his mouth. He was called evil. They thought they were doing God a favor by stoning him. And the Lord honored him and received him into glory. And that picture is a promise for us as well. Let me pray. Father, we ask we ask that we would be people who rejoice in our Lord Jesus, who rejoice in being counted worthy to suffer for the name when we do, who rejoice in the blessing of being reviled and falsely accused and excluded for the sake of the Son of Man. For so wicked men did to the false pro- or to the prophets of God in the past. We recognize, Father, we recognize that as those who follow Jesus, those who honor him, we are not of this world. We are in it, but not of it. May we live in such a way, may we live in such a way that we are persecuted and so have the opportunity to bear witness that your spirit is with our mouths to speak of Jesus. And that we might know that Our reward in heaven is great and worth all of it. Lord, we pray for those who don't know your son this morning, clinging to their own lives. We pray that they would turn to your son Jesus, recognizing they're sinners and they have need of him to save them. They would look to him and know that he forgives them for their sins, that he rejoices to save them and count them as his own and so that you would save them. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.